Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Crackstats podcast. The co-host today is Sebastian Crankshaw, a full-time teacher, sometime football writer, and occasional scribe on rock. You can find him at his Big His Red on Twitter. Please send us your thoughts on Twitter. Don't forget to tag us and use the hashtag CrackStatsPodcast. Now, I'll pass the mic to Steven and Sebastian to crack on with this podcast. Hi, and welcome to another CrackStats podcast. I'm, I'm back once again with Seb. Um, we're we're going to talk about a few things today. Most importantly, we're going to talk about um, Virgil van Dijk and Liverpool's defence. Um, Seb, how you doing? I'm really good, thank you. It's wonderful to be here once again. It's getting to be like a properly regular thing. Um, yeah, pleasure to be here. And pleasure to be talking about Virgil van Dijk as well, who... Um, I like to describe Virgil van Dijk as if Michelangelo had crafted a footballer, I think it basically would have been Virgil van Dijk. Uh, he's, a, he's a very attractive man. But oh, that's not what we're going to talk about, though. But, <laughs> but he is. It has to be said. I think he's like the, the footballer that most looks like a male model. He's just like massively tall and just very attractive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, away no, 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 he is. And also, like, um, it's one thing being physically attractive, but then you've got, like, kind of David Beckham, I suppose, was sort of objectively good-looking, but then he opened his mouth. And yeah. any, any, any possibility of a homosexual crush absolutely disappeared <laughs> in that instant. Whereas Virgil van Dijk, it's, it's, it, it's the other way around. I mean, if he did sort of a radio show, you could quite happily fall in love with his voice. And then, yeah, no, no, no disappointment there. What, what, one of my favorite things about Virgil van Dijk, which is absolutely nothing to do with this podcast, is that whenever he does interviews and the interviewer asks him a question that's like a little bit of a dig, he literally just says, I don't care. <laughs> He's done it like three or four times. It's great. He's like, so you yeah. played really badly today, but you won. He's like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Amazing. Doesn't even pretend. Amazing temperament as well. I love that. I love that. Um, I can't quote it exactly, but Troy Deeney, after playing playing against him for Watford, and it was kind of like, man, he's he's one of those players. What exactly is he supposed to do? He's bigger than you. He's stronger than you. He's faster than you. He can play. He's got incredible technique. Man, even smells nice. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what do you do? He's just a full package. Can't yeah, yeah. Can't get better on him. Um, but we should probably talk about him in relation to. We we will we will. I've actually got a segue onto that. Have you ever played like five a side or anything like that? I mean, I wouldn't say played. <laughs> I was there. I was involved in the game. So attempted, yeah. Then I existed. You, you'll be my perfect guinea pig for this point. Then, then you'll have actually been in a situation where you are literally playing against someone who is stronger than you, faster than you, and better at football than you. And it's just an embarrassment. You get like within two minutes, you get reduced to sort of like attempting pathetic fouls on them, which they still shrug off, and. Uh, that's what playing Virgil van Dijk is like, not just for 
well, for for even for like top level players, basically. And the, yeah. the link into what we're going to talk about is that it enables Liverpool to play in a very, very, very risky way because you can leave Virgil van Dijk one-on-one and you can leave him one-on-one with not just like Troggy McTroglodyte who hasn't got any pace but can sort of challenge in the air, but you can leave him one-on-one against literally everyone. And possibly one of the reasons why we've looked occasionally shaky in defence this season is that like one-to-one reliability that Virgil van Dijk had is not quite there yet because he's still in the process of recovering from that injury, you know? And it feels like it feels like his pace isn't quite what it was and that his mental pace is only just starting to get back to what it was, you know? Compare and contrast with kind of how Martip's been playing this season, who's looked um, superb. Yeah, it's kind of interesting as well that that we have, like... I genuinely believe Joel Matip in any partnership with any other defender would look like the, the best defender in the league. Uh, it's just the fact that he's paired with Van Dijk, so Van Dijk gets the headlines. But Joel Matip on his own has been absolutely world-class for a while now. And it's only just his fitness. That's the only thing that you can count against him, really. Um, the fact that pretty much up until this season, uh, he was only ever able to play like a, a bunch of games in a row, and then he picked up an injury. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the sort of elegance with which he kind of picks picks the ball up and sort of strolls out of defence with a kind of really a kind of deceptive pace as well because it's not like he isn't it's not like he actually is super super quick it's just that like his legs are 17 feet long so his his kind of walking pace it takes him still some distance do you know what I mean other other players have to sprint in the distance that uh, Matip can do in sort of three steps Um, and I think that's maybe part of why he's underrated partly the injuries and also partly he's just one of those players that kind of looks really ungainly I'm thinking here also of like for example Peter Crouch back in the day in the Wankwo Kanu um players who were like really, really, really technically gifted but had a sort of awkwardness about them that kind of belied the technical ability that they actually had as well. Yeah, I think I always think John Maddup looks like a, a giraffe running through a car park. It just looks <laughs> so surreal. You're just watching like, what are you doing? Where are you going? Oh, actually, that's really good. Oh, no, keep going then. That's, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> For some for some reason, I'm now getting like kind of waves of sad nostalgia for Toys R Us, um, whose mascot was a giraffe. In case you were wondering what the link was there, but anyway, we we the reason why we wanted to talk about um, Virgil Van Dyke and Joel Martip is not just because they both smell nice, but also because we wanted to talk about um, playing football with a high line, right? And actually. I remember when we were sort of doing the preamble to this, we were recording this before, before, after the Atletico match and before the United match. And we were thinking both of those matches are going to give us a lot to talk about in terms of like the effects of playing a deep line, a high line. Weirdly, I thought a lot of the kind of things you might want to say about a high line were illustrated 
very well in the Atletico match, kind of because of the fact it felt like our high line wasn't working at its best, you know, that you could see how us pushing so far forward compresses the play a huge amount and actually enables us to dominate possession, dominate the ball against pretty much any team. But at the same time, if there's a sort of slightless lapse in concentration, in fitness, then you're facing potentially huge problems on the counter-attack, which is maybe why so few teams risk it. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, to give to give people just a, a general idea, um, it, to, to put it in very basic terms, um, whenever you're defending, you've got two aims that you're trying to focus on. Um, and it's generally an either or thing. So you're either trying to prevent teams having space. Uh, and a good example of this would be Burnley, um, where they try to prevent teams having any space in behind them or any space in between their lines. They play very compact and very low. Um, and the second would be um, trying to prevent teams from having time on the ball. And that's very much what we're aiming for. Um, and to do that, you basically have to push yourself as far up into their half of the pitch as you can so that as soon as your attack breaks down someone can't receive the ball control it look up and pick out a runner because if your line is as high as ours uh, ours is then you you just get picked off um with long balls when you have someone with a lot of pace in behind um and that's why uh for example the real madrid goal that we conceded last season is a perfect example of it we didn't get near tony cruz our line wasn't even that high. It was like in the middle of our own half. It's often a lot, lot higher. But simply because he had time on the ball, he can pick you off. Um, and I even remember players like Agbana doing it with Arnautovic on the pitch against Joe Gomez. So it's, it's not even like a pace thing. Uh, it is simply a case of if you allow... The line has to be static. They can't just be running backwards. They have to hold their line. So if you've got someone like Arnautovic running in behind you and someone like Agbana is able to pick it off, simply because he had time on the ball. Um, it it, it kind of illustrates the fact that time on the ball is, is such a crucial thing to prevent for the way we play. Um, and crucial to that is pushing the defensive line as high up the pitch because the, the higher the defensive line can push up, the less space will be between them and midfield. So the midfield line can push up and then there's no space between midfield and attack and so on. And eventually end up compressing it to the point where they either just hoof it long over your defence and, and hope for the best which means you end up just generally picking up a lot of loose balls forward and then you're just constantly pinning them in, recycling possession and going again. Um, And that's ultimately what our game plan is. I think against Atletico Madrid, we never actually saw our game plan. Even though we were 2-0 ahead, I didn't think we were playing that well. Um, I think the two goals just came from like moments of luck stroke brilliance. Um, But we didn't create any big chances. It was just like... Mohamed Salah cuts across the box, beating as many players as he humanly can, as usual, and then scores. Uh, and then Naby Keita scores a screamer from the edge of the box from like a crappy clearance from a cross. I mean, those goals happened. They were great goals. But again, it's like, well, we didn't really create anything. But the whole thing about pinning them back and not letting them get out and there being like a certain amount of intensity and art, it just wasn't there at all last night. It just didn't look like a Liverpool performance that we're used to. Like the way... Um, Pep Linders talks about imposing your will on the game and, and um, showing your identity. I just don't think we did. Interesting point. And while we had a lot of possession, I, like 
the kind of incidents you talk about ring ring a bell where we haven't sort of where we haven't pressured the ball and then there's space and time and you can pick up pick out a pass. But what I haven't seen from Liverpool very often is kind of like um, players having the sort of our entire half to run into. You know, how many times did we get picked off with kind of balls that couldn't be offside because the players actually started in their own half a couple of times? And then the amount of space that they then had to run into. Yeah, that was kind of that was kind of crazy. And that's not something I've seen a lot of times. Um, but there's really there's a lot to pick up on from from what you said there. And one of the things I found interesting is I remember reading about um, Arrigo Sarchi, one of the sort of pioneers of the pressing system, and he was obsessed not with keeping compact, but not like on his own goal line and only ever having a certain amount of space between his furthermost attacker and his rearmost defender sort of thing. And that like that was something that was very dynamic, that moved up and down the pitch. Um so if the if the attackers were very high, the defenders had to be very high. And what was important was not that the defenders were like past the halfway line, but that there was very, very little space in between the attackers and the defenders. And that was really interesting. And it was also interesting kind of what you said about pressure on the ball. Like there's there's an ongoing perception that Liverpool's fullbacks either aren't good at defending or leave too much space in behind or push too far forwards. But actually from what you're saying, it's often not so much that people are pushing forward, but that the pressure on the ball isn't there. And that that's sometimes the that's sometimes the problem. So if um if a striker isn't pressuring the ball, then someone has space and time to pick up a pick out a pass. If the attacking midfielder isn't pressuring the ball, and if they're not doing that kind of collectively, they're not doing that sort of impacts, they're not doing that systematically, which seems to have also sometimes been the case with um when we've had a midfielder who's injured or a midfielder who's sort of fresh into the team or maybe a little bit like without wanting to single anyone out too much, but like Henderson a little bit this season just hasn't seemed quite on the pace or Cater, who I think is a really superb player, but sometimes struggles a little bit physically and yesterday just looked knackered. It means there's a kind of weak link in the press there who either isn't pressing as much as they should do or can be bypassed, which then gives time and space on the ball, which then undermines the whole system. Because if your defensive line is pushed that far forward, then there's always going to be space to pick out a pass. And you're always going to have strikers who can be even the fastest sort of one-on-one defenders in a foot, foot race. Like as fast as Joe Gomez is, He's never going to be as fast as the fastest striker is. Yeah, and it's also their, their starting positions as well because basically Joe Gomez is going to be standing, sort of kind of facing the opponent's goal, probably like semi-turned, but but he's also going to be stationary or moving towards the opponent's goal. He can't just drop off as soon as we lose possession because like you said, Arrigo Saki, all the spaces between all the lines would just open up. If your defence just d- disappears the moment we lose possession, 
then the opposition have a big space between the defensive line and the midfield line to play in. So he kind of has to hold his position, whereas Arnautovic has like a running start on him every time. And we saw that a bunch of times last night. I remember Griezmann got in behind Van Dijk and I thought, wow, that, that looks way, way offside. But it, he started in his own half and he ended up like 30 yards on set, like 30 yards away from Van Dijk by the time Van Dijk started the motion to catch him up, which he eventually did. And then the same happened on the opposite side with Xiao Felix. He was like 30 yards onside. Um, and he just looked absolutely miles off. Um, and, you, and you just couldn't believe he was onside. But when you see the replay, he's like, he just had a run and start. And by the time the ball got there, and by the time Matip gets turned, and he's running diagonally across the pitch, whereas um, Joe Felix has a straight line to run in. So it just it just made it look very, very bad. But the, the whole thing about fullbacks as well, the, the thing is, is like, whenever a team loses the ball, they can either drop off, and the fullbacks drop off and try to get into defensive positions. Ours never do that. Ours push up because they're trying again to push up on the opposition to stop them getting out. Which means you cannot possibly be back preventing teams getting in behind you as a fullback and pushing up to prevent the ball being played in behind you as a fullback. You can't literally be in two places at once. So that's a tactical choice. So we're making the conscious choice that basically our fullbacks pushing up on theirs to prevent them playing long balls to the wingers and behind our fullbacks, that's better for us and will result in less attacks than team, our fullbacks just dropping off and their fullbacks being free outlets every time they get the ball back. Because our forwards narrow, so our forwards can't be watching their fullbacks as soon as it breaks down, which is why ours push up so high. And I think that's that's the thing that, that people have to realise is that like you can criticise Trent for, for defence performances, but you can't really criticise Trent for the tactical choices that a team makes when they play the way we do. Um, uh, um, what do you call him? Guardiola's solution to this is basically his fullbacks narrow and push in the midfield. And his forwards, he always had two forwards kind of staying out wide. Um, and that's his solution to that. They don't actually um, play anywhere near the same way we do in that sense, like in terms of positions. So his fullbacks are always basically protect, protecting the middle of the pitch. But the result of that is their midfield ends up pushing up and being those players that are sort of forward and narrow. Um, and that's why they're more involved in goals than, than our midfielders. Again, it's just simple rules. Like uh, whenever a team is in possession of the ball, they generally all look the same in terms of who's were on the pitch. What's different is what rules are given to what positions. So like our fullbacks are all of the width in our team. For another team, it'll be their wingers. Our midfield is protecting the space through the middle. For other teams, that for Guardiola, that's the fullbacks. For other teams, it might be the centre-backs. But ours have split to protect the wide areas and so on and so forth. Which also maybe explains why, like, I don't watch City a lot, but it, it feels like they get a lot of goals from kind of byline cutbacks where the... Um, the wide forwards who basically who are much more like wingers are actually kind of cutting in the box making making sort of one twos and then maybe the other winger is getting on the end of it or a striker is getting on the end of it and the city striker seems to be much more of a striker scores a lot more goals like you say the attacking midfielders score more goals but the fullbacks aren't really involved in much of the attacking play in the final third at all right that if 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 they've got their role is more like recycling it so they're kind of they're they're of the group that picks up the second ball and then sort of recycle it recycles it seeks to keep possession which then i guess leads to its own 
strengths and weaknesses, different strengths and weaknesses that um, I don't really have the schools to, skills to kind of um, analyze inside and out, especially not watching City that much. But it's kind of fa- fascinating to compare and contrast these systems. And even on like a basic level, that the person who says that Liverpool's fullbacks push up too far I bet is also a person who doesn't mention how often they win the ball back in the opposition half, for example, you know, and it's not, it's not that you pick up the pushing the fullbacks high creates defensive vulnerabilities is that these discussions are always so one-sided as if there's no, as if there's no other consequence to that. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit, it's a bit like the, the, the old sort of cliche of like, Oh, the, the, it, it's 2-1 10 minutes ago. Why, why doesn't he bring on a striker? He's brought on a midfielder. That's crazy. They need goals. Why doesn't he bring on a striker? Well, if, if the team's problem is that they can't actually get the ball, they can't get the ball off the other team, how is a striker going to help them with that? It certainly isn't going to help them yes. win any more possession. Whereas maybe a defensive midfielder, strangely, might actually give them a platform to play from that allows their strikers to get some chances and hence score goals. And I think it's also interesting that uh, English teams struggled in Europe for such a long time um, with teams that played one striker, while teams, English teams in Europe were playing two strikers. And it was kind of like this weird thought that playing one striker is more defensive, whereas it's not really because the amount of goals you score is basically determined on the chances that you create and therefore dominating the ball and having more creative players on the pitch and therefore creating better chances means you score more goals um so just having two strikers doesn't mean that it just means that you have two goal scorers but if neither of them is very creative or very useful with the ball then that's two footballers down that you are instead of one um and obviously strikers have evolved now so they're a lot more fully functional in all phases of play but it certainly used to be the case in like the the 90s and early 2000s where a lot of english teams sort of just struggled anytime they come up against a a team that played one striker and getting back to that thing you were saying about saki actually it it made me think of um manchester city versus uh napoli a few years back whenever um sari was in charge of napoli um i don't know if you actually remember the game but napoli tried to push up on manchester city and then ederson was picking off their line whenever they did it um, and so they ended up in the second half dropping deep with their defense but their forwards were still pushed up and so they were ended up just basically being like 40 yards of space between each of the lines of the Napoli team and they got absolutely demolished um, and it just it, it just took me back to what you were saying about Arrigo Saki saying the importance was how much distance there is between your defensive line and your your forward line whereas with Sarri's Napoli they're, they're basically trying to solve a problem of the ball going in behind them by dropping their defensive line off which is what a lot of people suggest we do by the way and it doesn't work because then you end up with just your whole formation spread out over 80 yards of football pitch rather than over 30 or 40 yards so you're super easy to play through which is exactly what happened in Napoli they just got absolutely rinsed like imagine Jorginho imagine Jorginho was your holding midfielder trying to cover 40 yards of space on his own that's what was happening it was brutal yeah, unless it's actually like a deliberate sort of tactical decision, which um, obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things I thought was interesting about Atletico last night, and I'll say a word here for the camera angle in the stadium. That was awesome. 
you could see like you could really see the sort of almost the whole pitch and you could see the kind of the proper formation of the teams and how they interacted it seemed to me that um atletico actually kind of do what a team like burnley tried to do but on a much 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 higher level in that there's sort of two very very deep very compact banks of four but then the two strikers were actually left really high up the pitch not not really pressing but more just focusing on sort of finding spaces with Griezmann obviously more kind of trying to be the one to break the line and then how Felix maybe being the one trying to pick it up in between the lines and sort of one of them always being available for a passing option when our when our attacks broke down you know and they're exploiting that space of our fullbacks pushing up and our centre-backs being to an extent left one-to-one, but the centre-backs can't split, right? Our centre-backs can't... They can't suddenly go left-back and right-back to follow those two attackers there because then there's this massive, massive space in the middle that, that you just cannot you cannot leave open. And I found that quite interesting to see to see that in action yesterday. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the thing is as well, right, is that whenever you're playing like um, Burnley or any of those sort of low block teams, they always have flat lines in their formation. They always like... A f- well, and Burnley don't have Hal Felix and, and Griezmann, sorry to interrupt as well. There's a big thing with playing Burnley. Sorry, sorry, carry on. <laughs> no, no, but, but they always have flat lines in their formation. They'll have like a 4-4-2 and two flat lines of four. And whenever you're playing compact and deep, it doesn't really matter because there's very little space between those lines. Our problem last night was that we were trying to have... We, we ended up playing like a flat line of three in midfield. I don't know if that's by choice or whether it was just by the players on the pitch making this choice. But that was causing us a lot of problems. Because when you're playing high up the pitch the way we are, and you're playing a flat line of, of three in midfield, then you have no depth in your midfield to cover that much space. So we ended up just with this huge space that Felix could drop into between our midfield and our our defence. And, and, and that was the biggest problem for me the whole game, was watching like Joe Felix just caused us so many problems. Um, and it wasn't so obvious when you look at it in terms of data, but when you were watching the game, he just kept picking the ball up. Like He was always an outlet in, in really good positions that meant that we couldn't pin them back the way we would want to. It was that thing I said about our never really getting our game going. Every time they won the ball back, Joe Felix was always a really good outlet, really, really quickly and early. And our our midfield line just didn't help that at all. And it was that that was the hardest thing for me watching in the game. And that's why when Fabinho came on, it made a big difference. Obviously, the player sent off means that we can never really directly compare first half and second half. But as soon as Fabinho come on, if you watch the second half, like you'll see a, a shape in our midfield that looks more like a triangle. Whereas whenever it was it was Henderson as a six, it was just a flat line. And it was really, really hard to, to deal with it. Um, and for me, that was the biggest thing, the biggest problem we had in midfield last night was that. See, that's another really interesting thing. And I'm, I, I wouldn't claim to say that this is obviously the diagnosis, but it does lead me to another really, a really important aspect of playing a high line that isn't anything to do with tactics and everything to do with mentality, right? Which is number one, it takes it takes a lot of bravery to do it, and number two, it's extremely counterintuitive. Like I'm just going to go on a little bit of a segue here. Like I don't know if anyone 
if anyone listening has ever learned how to ski, for example, but learning to ski is really, really counterintuitive. To turn left, you have to put your weight on your right leg, you know? You have to lean forward constantly to get grip. And if you're doing any kind of jump, you absolutely have to train yourself to push forward because your body wants to lean backwards. But if you do lean backwards, then you just kind of do a half somersault and land on your back and wind yourself. And if it's a big enough jump, then you injure yourself horribly. Whereas if you get your weight forwards, then you can control the jump and then you can carry on skiing. And it's a bit like that playing a defensive line, right? And I thought their, um, their second goal was a really interesting and kind of classic example of it, of get out, it's a corner, get get out. When when do we defend a corner with like 10 of our players behind the penalty box? That's not how Liverpool defend a corner. Liverpool defend a corner by, as soon as there's a second ball, we fucking sprint out, out, out. And two reasons why we do that sprinting out is like number one, it gives us a really good chance to counter-press and counter-attack. And that thing you're saying about um, getting a running start, and not only getting a running start, but getting a running start on someone who is facing the wrong direction, that applies from your own corners. So if you win the ball back, suddenly you've got like three or four players who are running against two or three static players possibly even coming in the wrong direction. And that is an incredible break situation, especially when you've got players with the kind of pace and technique that we have. But the other thing is it stops exactly the kind of goal that Griezmann scored. If, If we're all pushing out, like committing to it, as soon as that second ball situation happens, then that shot's coming in and it's either an easy save for Alisson or an offside. And there's only two ways that that can go. Which is also why, like, um, oh, you know, like Rafa got mocked for it, but not leaving men on corners can be a really, really good idea because it leaves you one or two more players available to A, defend, and B, to not play everyone on side. And I think that's, that's, there's an interesting parallel here between the um, sort of zonal marking debate and the highline debate because overall, I think it both systems create are not just more effective but they create a better style of football like it's more interesting to watch a team that plays a high line than it is to watch a team that plays a deep line but i think it's also fair to say that when the system goes wrong because it's counterintuitive and because it tends to look kind of ridiculous when it goes wrong like your players have all pushed up to try and catch someone offside and then suddenly you've got two players against one goalkeeper. And to an extent, everyone is justifiably going like, well, how the hell does that happen? You must have colossally messed up. What sort of ridiculous system is it that leaves that? Whereas the, the situations where the high line is working very well, for example, you've scored a goal from your own corner, isn't quite as obvious. It's not quite as obviously connected to that system as the failings are. Yeah, and, and the other thing I would say is um, it, it doesn't only apply vertically, it also applies horizontally on the pitch. I see um, a lot of people highlighting, for example, like they'll take a screenshot of one of our games and they'll show that basically our team's very compact horizontally across the pitch. And they'll basically show, look at all this space that we're leaving on, on the other side. 
Um, and, and that's intentional. Like, I think people don't realize that, but that's, that's an intentional choice. Um, like Again, we're not trying to prevent teams having space. We're preventing them having time on the ball so that they can use that space. And if we end up spreading ourselves over the whole width of the pitch, we're easier to play through. So that's why you'll always see, like, we'll, we'll always be very compact around where the ball is, and that's intentional. Um, a, a good example of this, I remember, is we were playing Spurs. Uh, it was like, uh, it was near, it was around the time Naby Keita signed, and we were playing Spurs, and, and one of our goals we scored, I'm pretty sure it was Sadio Mane. I'd done a write-up for it on Empire of the Cop, and I basically showed how whenever we had a throw-in, Spurs' whole formation was compressed in the one third of the width of their pitch and all the space was on the opposite side of the pitch but instead of us using that space we actually just used it to recycle the ball to spread their formation out over the whole pitch so what happened was the throwing came to I think it was like Van Dijk it went to um, Genie Wijnaldum and then he turned and played it across the pitch to the other centre back it went out to Trent Alexander-Arnold Genie ran across the whole pitch received it back from Trent Alexander-Arnold and now the whole Spurs formation covered the whole pitch and then when he switched it back to the other side of the pitch there was like two defenders covering a huge space for Spurs on the side of the pitch where their whole formation was compressed like five seconds earlier and that's the thing that like it's intentional you want the other team spread out the more spread out the other team is the easier are to play through so that's why we always leave a ton of space on the far side of the pitch the aim is to prevent the other team having the time to use that space rather than to prevent that space exists so yeah again again that's really really interesting and it also makes me think about like one of the big features of our play in the title winning season was those amazing sort of cross field passes from Trent to Robbo right and it feels like those aren't happening as much but maybe that's just a simple product of like teams aren't trying to do was what Spurs did which is like concentrate their manpower in a smaller area you know, they're deliberately leaving themselves maybe more spread out around the pitch, or at least maybe more spread out laterally across the pitch, but maybe compensating for it in another way, like less space between the nines or something like that. Uh, it's actually like, it's fascinating you say that about the lateral space as well as the horizontal space. And I wonder if that's a more kind of recent tactical shift in football. And it's something that occurred to me with... Um, the kind of debate about Trent Alexander-Arnold as a midfielder or as a fullback. And it's kind of like, it occurred to me that for a player with an unbelievable passing range and as much skill as he has, a huge advantage of playing at right back is actually that he gets to see the entire pitch. Like, it, it if you think, I mean, if you just think about it spatially, like, there's a perception that either the centre-backs or the defensive midfielder get to see the, the biggest amount of pitch. But you've got a cone of vision of like, it's, it's not 180 degrees, but let's pretend it is just for the sake of argument. Your cone of vision is 180 degrees, so you're the centre-back. And that means you can see the whole pitch in front of you, but you can't see any of the pitch behind you at all. If you're Trent Alexander-Arnold and you're standing on the byline, then in theory, you can literally see the entirety of the pitch because behind you is the throwing line and that space is completely irrelevant. It doesn't, there's no, there's no consequence of letting someone go, the ball go behind you into that space. So actually for a player with the passing range that he has, arguably fullback is the perfect position precisely because you can see the entire pitch 
because the the edge of the pitch is covering your blind spot. And that was a sort of really interesting change in how I was visualizing football. And that's probably one of the things that is also really coming into play with the likes of um, Ian Graham and the kind of spatial analysis dimension coming into football is actually like, what have we been taking for granted in terms of space? What have we been taking for granted in terms of data? And actually, like going going back to Van Dyke, it's an aside to what I was saying, but like one one of the things that really struck me about Van Dyke and about Allison was how we show no hesitation in going. We were going to pay sixty million for Van Dyke. Do you know what? We'll give you seventy million just to make sure it happens when we need it. Allison, sixty million, no problem. We're not going to fuck about. Do you know why we're not going to fuck about? Is because these guys are like the messy of their position. They're, they're absolutely sort of generational players who are peerless kind of one-to-one players and who enable us to play the system we do in such a unique way. And we've spent a lot of time talking about that kind of necessity for the whole team to be compact. And then the logical extension of that is, okay, so the centre-backs are compact. What about the keeper? You can't then, if your centre-backs are pushed up to the halfway line, you can't then have a goalkeeper who is just, what, hanging around on their own line? Hanging around. That keeper has to be a big part of picking up those loose balls as well. And then Alisson and Van Dijk, they've got two of the best players who have ever existed in the entirety of football history in the kind of roles that we're employing them in. And we got them for a combined price of like 130 million. You know, imagine trying to do the equivalent with a striker. How much would peak Messi have cost or peak Ronaldo have cost? Easily double what we paid for effectively two Messis, two Ronaldos, with with a key difference being that like, ironically, the players who are further back in the formation are actually involved more. Because they're the ones who not only are they sort of dictating how high the line ultimately is, they're also the ones who are most able to communicate to the rest of the team what tweaks need to be made for the shape. As amazing as Salah is, it's not Salah who's going push up, push up, push up, push up, or get to the right, or we've left a gap there, or get on him. You know what I mean? Because he's just not able to see the pitch in that way. So that's got like yeah, it's really interesting. A bunch of thoughts on that. Basically, um, one of the things I wanted to say about was um, you were talking about the degrees of vision, um, and something I pointed out was um, whenever we played the Europa League final, um, I the the main problem we had against Sevilla was that Sevilla done a really good job in disconnecting our midfield from our attack. And the reason is, is that Emre Chan and James Milner, and also Henderson, even though he wasn't playing, but they have a problem in that they can't play on the turn. Um, that whenever they're receiving the ball and they've got their back to play, they they kind of have trouble in being able to turn and, and open up the pitch. So as soon as you so- realize that and can sort that out in terms of pressing them, that means the the ball's going to go to them, and then it's going to go backwards or to the fullbacks, and then you can't really get out. And that's basically the problem we had. And it's interesting that the next season, Jurgen Klopp's solution that, that was to change the 4-3-3. And the reason is is that if, if you're a, a number eight in our system, instead of receiving with your back to the play now, you're kind of out further wide, which means your position naturally is going to open up more 
to the rest of the pitch because you're going to be receiving more balls from central and wide areas from the opposite side of the pitch and you're going to naturally be able to have a peripheral vision of the most of the pitch so it actually helps you in terms of playing on the half turn which is a big problem our midfield had for for a long time and i thought that change was just very very interesting getting back to trent alexander arnold in particular though i remember when we watched him play i think it was against stoke and everton i, I want to say but it's something he also had a problem with and we we kind of don't want to think about the limitations of our players but the best managers are very good at masking the limitations of their players so that you only ever see their strengths and one of the things i noticed with trent alexander arnold in those games is that he really struggled whenever he was trying to receive the ball in central areas and he naturally drifted more towards the wide areas so he ended up playing the number eight position the way milner and henderson do where they end up very very wide but that meant Genie was basically alone in midfield. And it was it was really, really noticeable in those two games. And, and I always think about that whenever people talk about Trent playing in midfield. Is the fact that maybe fullback's best for him. Because he can have the complete view of the pitch. And he doesn't have to worry about his own press resistance there. Because he can receive the ball and see the whole pitch. But the other thing as well is that... Um, I can't remember the exact numbers. I think it's three seconds and five seconds. But the average amount of time you receive on the ball before you're pressed in midfield is about three seconds or less than three seconds but in fullback positions over five seconds and it's it's nearly double and and so if you're a player uh, and it includes on anywhere basically wide the more central you are the more uh, quicker you are pressed and anybody who's played in midfield will know this if you've played in fullback and then played in midfield you'll know as soon as you play in midfield all that time you suddenly had to control the ball and look up it just disappears you need to know what you're going to do before the ball comes to you in midfield um, and, and so I think, again, that just helps Trent because he has so much time to have his head up and pick out those passes. He's probably not going to get that in midfield. In midfield, he receives the ball. He's going to need to turn. He's probably going to need to beat someone that's right in front of him. And only then can he actually start worrying about what pass he's going to play. And I don't think that suits him at all. So I've never thought that Trent would be a good option to move in the midfield. And it's not because he isn't a good passer or a great player or any of that. I think it just basically takes away his biggest strength and probably highlights one of his weaknesses that we don't see because he plays at fullback. And I also think that's the reason why Henderson and Milner in particular are very, very wide eights because they have the sim they have a similar problem um, in terms of just not having that natural press resistance that a, a player coming through the youth academy now would, would naturally have in midfield. Compared to Curtis Jones, say. Oh, he's brilliant. Could be- you can you can press all day and yeah that's he he welcomes it yeah you know Elliot he wants well. the ball in a really tight space he wants to have three players all around him because that's a brilliant opportunity for him to take three players away from somewhere else which was something that um genie was so great at as well and you get the feeling that curtis jones is um he's he's going to kind of age like a fine wine probably even more than Harvey Elliott is who also looks like just a magical player anyway I don't I don't want to get into that because I'll get enraged um but I do want to talk about that it's funny we started talking about kind of Van Dyke and high line but what you're saying about our eights being pushed wider then also makes me think of Bobby Firmino right because if your eights are pushed wider then that necessarily leaves a space in between them. And who drops into that space? Bobby Firmino. And then you were talking about that, like a player with weaknesses creates problems elsewhere. Maybe that's why coaches love Bobby Firmino so much, because he is the exact 
opposite of that. How about a player who literally doesn't have any weaknesses in terms of the kind of roles who the kind of roles which you want him to take up on the pitch? And then suddenly, instead of creating weaknesses, you've got a player who just creates solutions. And I feel like we've missed Firmino so much. And I know that, that like, you can criticise his finishing to a certain extent, but really, like, where, where are the weaknesses? He's decent in the air. He's incredibly strong. He's got incredible touch. There's his sort of tactical awareness is first class. If, if you're a defender and Firmino's playing then you don't have any time on the ball, basically. It's just as simple as that. Wonderful player. It, it, it's funny you mentioned him because it actually it, it brings me to two of my biggest bugbears, I guess, about things I see on the pitch that I don't think people really talk about enough. The first one is, a lot of times I see when Firmino loses the ball is times where you're not meant to pass the ball to him. People always think that when someone's showing for the ball, it's because they want the ball. But sometimes it isn't. Sometimes he's literally moving the guy that's marking him out of a space that he wants the ball to be played into for someone else. But people give him the ball and then he loses it and you're just like, oh, Firmino lost the ball again. That really bugs me because like, you can see what Firmino's doing, but the person on the ball makes the wrong choice. And the reason is, is, is this, right? If someone's running straight towards you to receive the ball and they've got their back to the opponent's goal, like all of his momentum is going towards his own goal that's not someone you want to give your ball to because there's someone right up his backside that's if he tries to stop or turn you're kind of favoring that guy with momentum to sort of have a good chance of winning the ball and if he's moving towards your own goal the momentum is heading towards your own goal so you never want to be giving him the ball if he's dropping directly towards you if someone's moving towards you for the ball they're meant to move in like a pendulum action like around you so that that their their body shape opens up so they can receive the ball naturally and so when i see firmino dropping off the line i know whether he wants the ball or whether he's making space and you can see it but sometimes we still make the wrong choice and it's really maddening because we lose the ball a lot just because of that and and the second thing is that thing i was saying about players dropping off in a pendulum motion i see our players doing this a lot where they end up boxing someone in in the way that they're moving to call for the ball um, Emery Chan was really bad for this but basically Emery Chan was someone who used to just run around the pitch wanting the ball and he would always be moving towards the guy with the ball and sometimes you'd see someone receive the ball and they've loads of space and then Emery Chan drops towards them and he's pulling someone with him and between Emery Chan and the guy coming with him the guy's space that he had suddenly he doesn't have and we end up having to turn and pass the ball back and then Emery Chan complains and you're thinking, well, he can't pass to you for exactly the reason I just said. You're moving back towards your own goal. Like, why? you're not a good passing option there. Like, you'd have to stop and turn, which you're really bad at as a player. And we end up losing the ball. And so that used to really bug me. We, we still do it a lot, but it used to be more noticeable when Emery Chan was here. I used to complain about it all the time. And it felt like one of those things that I would say and other people wouldn't quite pick up on. And, and it would just be like like screaming into the void. I'm like, no, seriously, he needs to stop doing that. You can't just run towards the guy with the ball because you're shutting down his space. Like if the guy on the ball has loads of space, let him have that space. That's a good thing. It used mm. to drive me mental. No, I used to have that a lot with Lucas back in the day. That was the... That was the first time I felt a really big disconnect between what I was watching on the pitch and what other people were seeing, you know, because I was watching Liverpool like all the time, 
watching a lot of their matches back um, twice, uh, maybe even three times sometimes. And like, he's a really tidy player. He never gives the ball away. He's constantly recycling possession. He's he's winning a lot a lot of possession. And other people are seeing a player who doesn't do anything and passes it backwards all the time. And it was just kind of like, there's something is gone completely missing here. But yeah, that, that feeling's only intensified. But we're sort of straight off a bit on, on centre-backs, but basically it, it, it's kind of natural because every component in the team is connected. And so whenever you start talking about the centre-backs, you end up thinking about how what everybody else in the team is doing impacts on your centre-backs. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like, it, it's really hard to talk about our centre-backs without talking about the number six, because whoever the number six is has, has a dual role of basically trying to dominate the zone in front of the centre-backs, which Fabinho is brilliant at, absolutely brilliant at. But also, whenever the centre-backs split, he ends up almost being that central player to protect the the channel through the middle, and also to deal a lot with the target men, because target men will generally stay central, so they're in this, the sixes space rather than moving out wide to where the the, the centre-backs are. So if you're weak in the air, you end up losing the ball a lot there as well. So it, it, it's kind of really hard just to talk about one position because everything connects to it, you know? Like, if you've got a weak number six, if you've got a weak number six, then your centre-backs are going to struggle because they're going to need to step out more of the line to deal with the problem in front of them, which means they're leaving more space in behind them, which means blah, blah, blah. And just all, it's like a chain reaction of like one problem just ends up collapsing your whole system. Completely. That that Brendan Rodgers quote, which I really like, of um, managing a football team is like um, trying to repair an aeroplane while it's flying. It's absolutely true. No matter whichever change you make, has a knock-on impact and if you do it wrong then the whole thing just collapses completely and falls out of the air and the next thing you know you know you've been destroyed 5-0 no, and every anyway um and it's not just obviously it's not just in defense because you look at Liverpool this season and there's kind of like there's been a sort of attacking brilliance but maybe to a certain extent a certain level of defensive disjointedness and you're wondering well, Firmino having been missing, Van Dijk not being quite up to 100%, maybe that's contributing to the defensive disjointedness. But then on the flip side, we've got four strikers who are all in a kind of very rich vein of scoring. And and we've got Van Dijk back, who his passing from the back doesn't seem to have suffered at all from his injury. And we've got Matip, who's a phenomenal player at... Um, judging how and when to carry it from the back, when to release it. And as a result of that is a very kind of press-breaking player, very line-breaking player in a sort of underrated way. So at the same time that we've looked a bit fragile in defence sometimes, that's like, what, nine, nine games in a row, is it, that we've scored three away from home? Including including a match against that that's that's batshit that's completely batshit run of games like it's it's a very rare thing to ever score three away from home never never mind like nine times in a fucking row that's insane and it also makes me think of Rafa's uh, short blanket analogy where of course yeah maybe it is just naturally very hard to always have that balance perfect so at the moment we're probably attacking very very well because that's the thing we've been working on and training and everything looks very slick and organized in terms of our attacking 
but at the back it doesn't look the same and it's because probably that's not the big focus like whenever you're training over the course of a season it's kind of broken into the sections and segments I remember phase of play talking about this once but basically you're not training everything all the time you, you break the season down mm. yeah you, you you break the season down into sections it's like right well, we're going to really focus on our set pieces at this part of the season um, because it doesn't take a lot out of the legs but this part of the season where we, we don't have many games we're going to focus on counter attacks because we're going to need to do a lot of sprints and training and in this part and people and that's what the way it works and um so at the at the moment whenever we've been working on and training is making our defense look very good but our, our sorry our attack look very good but our defense just looks a little bit more shaky and maybe it's just the fact that that's where we've been focused on and training so the thing that we're working on looks very organized the things that we're not doesn't look very organized um and yeah i think it's very interesting as well i was looking at the weekend um I noticed that the the Watford game was the the highest number of offsides that we have had against us this season. Um, and then I look back on the data, um, and and I noticed that basically, uh, pretty much every team we've faced, we have at least two offsides against us. Um, and every team that we've faced has more offsides against us than pretty much their average for the season. But the big numbers right. were like Burnley had seven offsides against us. Um, which is like 172 up on 172 percent up on their average. Um, Manchester City had five against us, which is 119 percent up on their average. Brentford four, Palace three. Both of those are like over 200 percent up on their averages for the season against other teams. But Watford was like 13,000 percent up. They they had like four offsides against seven teams, and then they got eight in one game against us, which is just wild. These are teams that like don't get caught offside very often and then when they're trying to play against our high line suddenly they're like offside on every attack and that must be so frustrating to play against because every time you think oh we're in here no you're not offside it also must negate a couple of really key attacking weapons like um as i understand it kind of more kind of long ball teams are always preaching like the second ball the second ball the second ball the second ball you know you fight for the second ball you attack the second ball but we're very often negating that by catching it offside especially off set pieces presumably by pushing by pushing up from set pieces when we're simultaneously cutting off one of their main avenues of attack which is winning second balls off set pieces by making them offside and also setting up counter-attacks of our own by being on the front foot as soon as that kind of attack breaks down. So that's really interesting stat now. So it's not just like, it's nice when I, I've, I've got real appreciation of sort of statistics in football because it feels like when, when I had that rant about kind of hindsight-based punditry, it feels like statistics are one of the ways I can learn about things that I can't see on the pitch. And the way I choose to enjoy football is by is by watching it, by seeing it on the pitch. I'm not a sort of stats analyst guy. But when those two things come together, it feels like you do get a much, much broader picture of the game. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a really, really, really nice thing. There's a lot more to it than just 22 lads trying to kick the ball in the net. And when you get into that side of it, it's, it's like anything else. Like any anything anything worth getting into in life, there's always a deeper level. There's always a sort of surface appreciation. But when you start taking a look at what's going on under the surface, it gets really interesting. And it's um, 
it's really pleasant to explore that anyway. So thank you. I, I thought as well, um, I, I, whenever we talked about doing an episode on Van Dyke, I was thinking about that um, Arteta quote. Because Van Dyke's like the, the first player I can remember. He's a centre-back who was talked about in the way that Arteta was. And he, he basically said, whenever you get past Liverpool's press, um, and then you get the Van Dyke. So whenever you're pressing Liverpool and you get the Van Dyke, he just hits a 60-yard pass to Mo Salah and, and your whole press just became redundant. And that's the quality that he has. And I've never seen like a, a centre-back singled out like that. But it also made me think, like, is there some way statistically to probably pick up on that? Because like, if he's specifically being highlighted, maybe there's a way to pick it up. But it also made me realise that one of the problems of um, data, I guess, is that everything is always aggregated. So, like, if you look at centre-backs that play long balls or switch passes or blah, 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 it isn't when you're pressing them or it isn't whenever... Um, it, it Basically, it's all the time. So he can get the ball from the goalkeeper and then just hoof a long ball up the pitch. And that, that's the same as press, him receiving the ball, being under pressure, and then uh, picking out a player on the flank. Because it's very hard to basically separate the two out in terms of data. But but it is noticeable that he's in like the, the 99th percentile in terms of shot-creating actions among centre-backs in the last year. That's and interesting. Like the 90, 94th percentile in like switch passes. But but I was looking at all of our players, and it's it's noticeable, for example, that Matip are obviously like 94th percentile for progressive carries. That thing we're, we see about him, the gazelle up the car park every, every match, it, it's something that's picked up on the data. He's one of the best centre-backs at doing that. But all of our all of our centre backs are in like the the top 80th percentile for like passes in the final third. Um, they're in the top 70th percentile for progressive passes. They're all in like the 75th plus percentile for carrying the ball. So it looks like we definitely have a very specific type of centre back we're looking at. And Kanadi just ticks all those boxes. Like he's he he has more carries per game than even Matip. Um not as many progressive carries, but he clearly likes to just carry the ball. And he also has similar passing numbers to Matt up across the board as well. So clearly it's like we, we have a we have a type and, and Kanade seems to fit that type very well. And and he's fucking huge yeah. and fast he as really well. Is. Like and he's an again, absolute six, six foot four and he's a sprinter. Yeah. He's like he's literally like it, I remember someone who was a scout from Liverpool and I'll never remember his name. Oh, uh, d- sorry, just to, just to interrupt because that's sure. another thing I've, I've forgotten what the, the stat was, but it was also like surprising me that um, Van Dijk doesn't necessarily go in for so many tackles, right? And that, I think that's another thing that I remember watching from the um, kind of highlights combination reels of uh, Kanate was like big fucking thunder bastard that he is is a sort of archetype that in your kind of English filtered brain you're like alright yeah go on have it son fucking smash into him but actually he doesn't do that he jockeys 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 and then sort of eases the ball away away from the player um, and I thought that was interesting as well and I wonder if that's also part of what we look for and again Martip and Gomez there are also defenders who they look to ease attackers off the ball and come away with the ball at their feet rather than going in for a sliding tackle, right? And it also probably feeds into why Liverpool gets so few yellow cards. Like, 
I think all of our centre-backs are the type of players that don't dive in. I, I, to be honest, I really hate centre-backs that go to ground. Martin Skirtle used to drive me insane for it because it was so unnecessary. Um, but he would just dive in and just take himself out of the game and he's just like, oh. Or he would just run away. He would just back up into his own goal mouth until he was like two yards away from Mignolet and the guy has a shot from point-blank range when he started running 60 yards from goal. It was just things like that used to just do my head in. And I'm so glad that we're so far away from that now. But um, I, I really liked Canadi's performance the, the, when I first saw him. I think it was against... Um, was it Norwich? Um, his first like uh, competitive game for us. There was a moment where he, he got turned and done for... It was a clever turn and he just got done on the edge of the box. And he, because he hadn't dived in, he recovered quickly and just blocked the shot. And it was such a small thing... But it was such a big moment for me because I was thinking, yeah, yeah, that's the type of defender I want. Because there's going to be moments where someone does something really clever, a really clever turn, and you're a bit off balance and you just get done. And you get done on the outside. There's nothing you can do about it. If you dive in, you're you're done. They they score. But he recovered immediately and he was so fast. He he got across the ground and made the block. And it it was a wonderful moment for me because it was just like... That's a it's like a Joe Gomez moment. He's one of those centre backs that you see doing that, and there's not many that can recover that quickly. He just has that athleticism. Oh yeah, and I, I really like Kanata. He's basically like got the attributes of all our centre backs, almost in one. He's not he's not as good in the air as Van Dyke, but he's good, and he's not as good at carrying the ball as Matip, but he's good, and he's not as fast and and, and athletic as Joe Gomez, but he he's he's still got that as well. He's just like a, a, a crazy mixture of all of them. It's fantastic. I really like him. And he's, what, like 23 years old? He's an absolute baby. And he's in a luxury position of like, he's going to have kind of like, he's he's already had a full preseason. And up until October, basically not playing competitively at all. Which means what he's been doing is he's just been soaking shit up on the training pitch, soaking it up, soaking it up, soaking it up. And everything we understand about Liverpool is that if you're if you're a player who is willing to learn and we attract the type of talents who come to us precisely because they understand that they're among the best and that we're among the best at pushing the best beyond that. You know what I mean? We're a club you come to if you're hungry to learn, not if you're hungry for money, not if you're hungry to, to fucking have medals draped around your neck. But if you're hungry to actually be the best goddamn footballer you can be, we're the club to come to. And while it must be hard to not be on the pitch, on the other hand, there must be a part of you that is like, when am I ever going to get another chance to actually go to a sort of football university like this and just learn every day in training watching Van Dyke talking to Van Dyke learn every day in training talking to Martip learning from Martip learn every day in training like if I want advice on how to keep my career going for as long as it possibly could go I've got James Milner who is 83 years old and is still playing at football at fullback for Liverpool Football Club do you know what I mean and then, and that's not even talking about the fucking coaches. That's not even talking about the fucking coaching setup. Yeah. Like, 
yeah i, I think yeah as well. when you get the feeling that it'll be a, like a robot situation someone someone will unfortunately get injured and then kanate is going to come in and everyone's going to be like who the fuck is this monster what the fuck what like where does fuck me how has this guy just been like how has he not been playing from the start you know and that when he comes in whoever it is who misses out is going to have a fuck, fucking hard time getting back in and i include van dyke in that which is probably the highest praise i can give really yeah, that's exactly where I'm at with with uh, Kanade as well. It it makes me think that that uh, Jurgen Klopp kind of has previous with this too. Like, um, whenever he signed Lewandowski, he didn't play Lewandowski as a striker at first. He he kind of used him very sparingly, but when he did, it was more behind the striker, and he was basically just um, getting him used to playing in the Bundesliga, where he wasn't the the last ma- guy leading the line learning how to basically link up play and drop off the line and get more involved I guess in the game so that you're not just like an out and out striker and with um, Sven Bender when he signed him he basically ended up playing him in like the the Division 3 in Germany um, for their, their second team for a while uh, before he actually ended up in the first team um, he, he ended up doing the same with like Gundogan, Gundogan was in and out of the team for um, his first season sort of like got a few games under his belt then pulled him out of the team to, to have a rest and sort of learn a bit more and absorb the difference between playing for like Dortmund and uh, I think it was Frankfurt he came from I'm not sure now but yeah but yeah he, he has previous with and he's done it with loads of players at Liverpool he's done it with Fabinho done it with Robertson um, done it with Oxlade Chamberlain um, he even said himself once that um, uh, the first sort of six or twelve months of the players here he doesn't actually give them much instruction he just tells them to go out and play and do whatever they've been doing so he can learn what that player is and then he tries to mould what they're good at into what Liverpool need and also get rid of whatever they're not so good at or what isn't very useful to us and try to filter that out. Um, and, and that always sticks in my mind because I remember, um, what's Sebastian Kale? I remember him saying that like uh, whenever, he, whenever he started playing under Jurgen Klopp, it took him like 12 months to really properly adapt to everything Jurgen Klopp needed him to do. Um, because it was so mentally stressful um, like uh, the pressing triggers and, and uh, the positioning and the timings and, and getting all of that right is very very stressful because you have to make so many decisions in the game whereas at other teams you, you probably don't have that many decisions to make because the coach is basically rigid, rig, rigidly practicing right you're here when the line's here you're here and, and here and Liverpool it's like or Dortmund it was like okay you need to make decisions so we're going to have all of this space and, and you need to decide whether you're going to deal with that problem or that problem or that problem um, and I think a lot of people miss that whenever they're, they're criticizing Liverpool's performances or players and they basically say like uh, maybe it's like tactical instruction and I think people don't realize how little tactical instruction there'll be during the game it's, it's all of that's done in training but ultimately when it gets onto the pitch most of what you see is just decision making it's very high level decision making and it's very, very easily if you're tired for that to go badly wrong. Because the more tired you are, then it's just decision fatigue. Too many decisions start to rack up. Yeah, do, do you know what? And that, that's such a, such a good point that we seem to be maybe more, more affected by tiredness than sometimes. And that like, I'm training as a teacher at the moment, right? And that, um, again, like it, 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 it's decision after decision after decision. There's no... 
there's sort of multiple layers of sort of strategy of emotional kind of intelligence of having a lesson plan in your head of adapting that plan on the fly in an environment where there's no you don't have a sort of second to step back and take stock of what you're doing and think about like okay hold on everyone i'm just gonna have a like a little 10 minute sit down to sort of plan what the next steps are going to be coherently it's all got to be done on the fly and that's part of what makes it really really fascinating right um but the flip side of that is the 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 impact it then has if you're if you're not at your best and in particular if you're really fatigued in some way through physical or mental tiredness or a combination of both or any other thing that's having an effect on those global pandemic it, it so quickly goes all over the place right because the it's a kind of compound thing like because you're making so many decisions and being tired makes it more likely that you're going to make just one bad decision and as soon as you've made one bad decision there's an instant sort of snowball effect because all of the other decisions are sort of dependent on that decision so that's a really sort of that's a really interesting insight as well yeah yeah whenever i worked in in financial services um uh, I worked in an investment department and, and I was a, a department head. And I remember I used to say to people, like, everyone has bad days. Like, it, so don't worry about it when it happens. But the key thing is, is that if, you, if you're coming into work and you already know that you're, like, tired or, you're, or you've had, like, bad news and you're probably going to have a de- bad day, like, just say to the, the me and the people around you so that we can cover for you. Like, we'll double check your work. We'll not give you any calls to deal with that are going to be particularly complex we'll we'll protect you because for a day we we don't mind doing that like if it's every day yeah it's a problem but everyone has bad days so so that's what we used to do and, and i was the the sort of person that led from that because i would have bad days and i'd just come in and say to people you're going to need to cover my work today and pay attention to what i'm doing and make sure i'm doing it right so i had to make a point then of training people in my team to know how i did my job so that first of all when i'm not there they can cover for me which is very useful for them. But mostly it was it was also just so that they could check my work and make sure there was no mistakes. And we had like a really high accuracy rating in, in what we did. We didn't make many mistakes as a team. And I was always very proud of that, but I always thought that was under, underpinned by the fact that we knew we were gonna have shit days and we would just say to each other and, and then we would just solve it ourselves. Because as soon as you're tired, like you, you just know you're gonna have a shit day at work. You go into work with that mentality of knowing that like today's going to be one of those days i just know it can feel it um and so yeah that, that was my solution to that was just to like we, we would always just be brutally honest with each other and say like i think i'm gonna have a shit day today can you watch me and that, and that would be that's it. a really interesting um that's a really interesting approach really interesting approach and one that i'll think about as well but how do you do that in the football pitch yeah 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 in in the kind of environment where like any drop in performances yeah 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 yeah, yeah exactly yeah and the other thing as well is like if you're say for example you're um nabby keita and you're feeling exhausted yesterday and the team's announced and you see you're starting or or Jurgen club comes and speaks to you and like are you okay to play again you also know that like i haven't played a lot of football and i kind of need to kneel down a place in this team and if i say like oh, i can't really play today just because i'm feeling a bit tired you know it's like who does that and, and also we're missing players so it might be a case of like i'm feeling a bit tired i could do with the rest and the boss is like we really need you here everyone else is out injured i would hope that given the new fitness 
um, what's his name, Stefan Schumberger, um, seems to be doing really good work as well, like in terms of how players have recovered from injury and how well um, Martip and Cater seem to be coping so far, touch wood, fingers crossed, lick my lucky rabbit's foot, whatever the, whatever the hell. Um, I was worried when Van Dijk... You would you would hope you would hope that Liverpool is a club where it's at a place where that's pretty much out of the players' yeah. hands. Do you know what I mean? Or at the very least, it's like the coach is coming to the player with data going like, Nabi, I know that we're pushing you to the edge of your limits, but here's the situation. We need you to play. If you can't tell us, do you know what I mean? Kind of thing. So that, that's that's like understood, and it's not just a kind of like, "Hey, are you are you are you good to play?" And definitely, your place is conditional on it as well, which does seem to be the vibe in a lot of clubs, and the sort of like certainly the old school vibe was that. Jurgen Klopp was kind of asked about that last night um, by one of the journalists. They basically said like, um, "What was the deal with Navigator last night?" Yeah, uh, and, and he, he kind of singled. Yeah, and and he basically said we we. Uh, we kind of thought he was good for 45 minutes because he's, he's played a lot of football but we always kind of had it in mind that he had played a lot of football and wouldn't be able to do the whole match and, and so they were basically just trying to get I guess 45 minutes out of him and 45 minutes out of Fabinho I think it's really really hard to, to start a big game away at like Atletico Madrid with a midfielder who hasn't trained with a squad at all um, since before the international break because all your like tactical preparation for that match and and everything he he wouldn't have been involved for that so yeah by being able to sit on the bench i mean i mean it's it's an interesting thing with cater as well that like he yes he he lost most of his duels but he was involved in more duels than anyone so yeah. in terms of the tactical job he was being asked to do it did not seem like he was shirking on the tactical job he was being asked to do he was doing it he just perhaps wasn't able to do it at the best of his ability. And that, like, I mean, you, you can't have a go at someone for that. Do you know what I mean? You can't have a go at someone for, like, being in the team to kind of press players and attempting more presses than anyone else and not succeeding in them when 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 they're obviously knackered. That's just, I mean, that's the way that shit goes, you know? Or, like, the Hal Felix goal as well, like... Clearly, Naby perhaps could have been stronger in the tackle there, but he never gave up. That player was being pressed the entire time by Naby. And there's three other players who had the opportunity to block him, to foul him, to help press him, and all of whom were in a better position to actually block, tackle him to get the ball and make actually use of the pressure that sort of Cater was putting him under. And they didn't succeed in that either. Man, shit happens. Yeah, we should um, move on to Room 101. Um, I think I asked you last time about Room 101 and it was something to do with pundits. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember, to be honest. I, I don't want to... No, do you know what? Do you know what? Do you know what? Alan Shearer still hasn't gotten back in touch. Neither has Gary Lineker, so, you know. Well, yeah, that's that was my first question. I can, I can only include. I can only conclude that both of them are um, wimps, basically. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that publicly, loud, absolute wimps. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think I even added them on Twitter, so they obviously heard the message and choose to ignore it, which makes them wimps. I think, I think I can occupy the moral gri- high ground now. Okay, on to, on to room one hundred and one. 
I, I was curious to see if we'd get any feedback from it, and most of the feedback was just that you didn't go in on Danny Murphy and Jermaine Janis as well. I mean, that that's generally what most people's concern was. It wasn't any concern about Alan Shearer or Gary Lineker. It was concerned that it was them instead of Janice and, and Murphy, which is interesting. So to put it in sort of, it, it sort of put it in footballing terms. It wasn't. It wasn't that I went in like two footed off the ground into someone's face, ignoring the ball. It's that I didn't kind of extend that into the two players behind them as well. You know, actually, I should have gone in two footed into the face and then thrown a couple of punches as well. Oh, that's it's good to know. It would be like saying to Jimmy Carragher, like, I understand why you tackled Nani like that, but couldn't you have done it on Ronaldo? <laughs> so, yeah. Jim, I, I, actually, I actually have an answer to that, and that is to do with power dynamics. Um, Shearer, Shearer and uh, Lineker are higher in the um, hierarchy, no, no doubt. Uh, but we see, I think that's what your thought is on this, but I think other people's thought is it's based on annoyance. Like, Danny Murphy isn't on TV as much, but the limited amount of time he has is just pure 100% annoyance. Whereas Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer sometimes don't annoy you. Yeah, and D- Danny Murphy has that kind of voice pitch that's like a baby crying as well when he's... Yeah, yeah anyway. Yeah. But Jermaine yeah. Janice is a different thing. Jermaine Janice is like everywhere. I'm pretty sure he's going to be like head of the UN in a few years and like joining BTS and fucking like he's everywhere he's going to be hosting the Jimmy Fallon show when he's sick and and so like Jermaine Janice does kind of need someone to just take him down a notch you know it's he's he has a lot to say but says nothing and he says it all the time I feel like that's a motto I can live by. Yeah. So, Rim 101 today. Um, I, I, yeah, what is it? <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Can I, can I even remember what, what Rim... Hold on, hold on. I've actually got to remember what Rim 101 is today. I, see, I think it's I, I lost it, and then I had it. And then, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yes, because it ties beautifully into the whole question of high line. And that is the offside rule. Like... I would like the whole concept of is he interfering or not in play to go into one room one-on-one because to me there was absolutely nothing room wrong with the offside rule as it used to be and I'll, I'll give you sort of two big reasons why there was nothing wrong with it. One, it feels like it was brought in solely because of kind of two or three goals a year where... Uh, uh, there was an attacker lying injured by the corner flag and a goal was disallowed because of the offside situation there, you know? And the commentators are like, well, he's not at all interfering in play. It's ridiculous that the, it, that it hasn't been allowed to stand. Which I can see, it, it's sort of fair enough on the face of it. Mm-hmm. But what that has then brought in is any number of goals where there's players who are clearly interfering with play and the goal is let to stand. I mean, yes, Griezmann's goal against us, but also Salah's goal was ridiculous. There's, yeah. he's, he's standing miles offside. The defender is motivated to make a, a block, at least in part because he can't know 
for sure if Salah is offside or onside. It's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous that the attacking team should get to benefit from that. But actually, yeah. more and more fundamentally and more importantly, it's a question of how... It's a question of the nature of football and how rules actually work in a sport like football. And football is an incredibly fast-paced game. There are no sort of stops in play. There is very little room to sort of stop and look at replays. And there's very little room for a referee to be kind of like thinking about the permutations of a rule. And the offside rule as written was black and white, no interpretation. If X, then Y. And as much as possible, that is how all football rules should be because it makes the game work better, because you don't have time to think about 27 different interpretations. And I'll give you an example, which is the um, handball rule, as it's been brought in. Now, it's not perfect, but the old rule, the old rule was all about um, intent. Now, intent is not something that you can meaningfully judge on a football pitch, unless yeah. you are, what, God? You know what I mean? And what they've done is they've taken that intent and they've just clarified it really, not not perfectly simply, but they've clarified it. Like, yeah. if you're a defender, there's something called an unnatural silhouette. That means your balls, your 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 balls are outside of your body. Uh-huh. Yeah. That your Hopefully. arms are outside of your body shape. Your hands are up in the air. Your blah blah blah. There's a certain distance between you and the ball, and the ball hasn't rebounded. That's a fair bit to keep in your head, but at least it's clear, you know? And in terms of the attacking sense, if you hit it with your hand, it's not a goal. Simple, brilliant. Very little room for interpretation. And particularly in the case of premiership referees, who are fucking imbeciles, the less interpretation we can give them to deal with the more likely it is that they may make one or two decisions right in the game because I just don't I don't think they have the spare processing capacity to deal with questions of things like intent, you know? Yeah, I, I, I see a lot of unconscious bias in, in Premier League refereeing, um, which, which is unfortunate, but it, it's kind of natural because they're human. All humans are prone to all biases. There's like hundreds of different biases and... When I watch Premier League referee and it, it, it worries me that we put in charge, like, for example, the referee in charge of the Manchester United game at the weekend is from Manchester. And it doesn't matter whether he supports Manchester United or not. The fact that he's from Manchester means he will have a stronger opinion on them than if he wasn't from Manchester. Yes. Yeah. And so yeah. he'll have a wife and friends and kids and uh, the guy that owns the local pub that he goes to and... All of these people will have a strong opinion on Manchester United, and that all feeds his own biases. Um, and it's it, it can be a positive or a negative thing. He can dislike Manchester United, or his wife could dislike Manchester United, and so he's just like subconsciously just judging in that way. Or he could be overcompensating for that just by naturally thinking, I don't really like them, or I know my wife won't, so I'm just going to give it. And so that's what happens. And, and the best way to avoid that is just to remove as much as possible any sort of biases that you can and so yeah just physically remove manchester from great britain uh, particularly their referees that that would work as well so, but yeah i mean that's the thing but getting back to what you were saying about the offside rule um 
I think it's impossible for a, a player to be in the opposition's penalty box and not be interfering with play. Because if someone's in your penalty box, someone else in the defending team has to be concerned with who they are and what they're doing and marking them. And if that guy makes a run in behind, someone has to track that run. So he can be playing the whole team on side because he's tracking a guy that doesn't count. How does that work? How does he not count? And that makes no sense to me. And the Salah example is great for me because Salah didn't score the goal and didn't touch the ball and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, the defender knew where Salah was. He doesn't know whether he's offside or not. And I've, I've played centre-back. There's no way of knowing because you can look no, around can, and just... How, how can you when the ball is yeah. crossed in like that? You're focused. You have exactly. to be focused on where the ball's coming from. And you don't know if... Yeah, of course, of course you can't. Exactly. You just know. But you do know that if, if the ball misses you, then he's the man behind you. So it doesn't matter if he's offside or not. Exactly. Because if he isn't offside, he's just as able to get the ball as if he were standing offside. So you have to... And so imagine you're coaching kids, right? And, and you're basically coaching centre-backs. And you say to them, what? If you think someone's offside, don't play the ball. Just in case they're offside. Yeah. But then but... what if they're onside? So then you've just like ignored the ball and they score a tap-in. Like, how would you coach that? It just makes defending impossible. I hate that. Exactly. And... And, and taking on to that, we've been talking a little bit today about that kind of like every decision has a consequence that isn't necessarily the consequence you expect. Yeah. Like in theory, the change in offside has produced more goals in football. And it possibly has in the sense that there's now goals scored by players who are standing blatantly 10 yards offside when a free kick's being taken who then come back on side and score a goal, which I fucking hate. I fucking hate that that's a thing now. That's what offside was brought in to get rid of in the first place, was shitty bullshit, goal-hanging, non-fucking football bullshit. That's why every team sport which has a ball and goals has an offside rule is precisely to stop that exact fucking thing. But anyway... Um, it also means how, how many teams would there be who maybe would decide to play a high line if the offside rule were different? And how much more interesting might football be as a sport if we saw two high line teams playing against each other on a more regular basis? Now, let me put this another way. How often has there been a Liverpool-Man City match where people, fans, pundits, just the general footballing public have reacted to it in the way that they used to react to the kind of like the sort of top Italian matches in a certain time or Brazil in the World Cup where you get where you get two deep lying teams playing against each other two high two teams committed to a high line playing against each other generally makes for even if it's a goalless draw it makes for a really interesting game yeah. where there's a lot of back and forth, where there's counter-attacking, where there's intrigue, where there's pace, where there's tackles, where there's not a lot of time on the ball, where the whole thing feels high-paced and risky. Two teams playing deep lines, I mean, I quite enjoy it sometimes because it is like a kind of like a tactical thing going on, but, but it is that kind of more like watching chess. It's not something you watch for the adrenaline rush. You know what I mean? It's something you watch for the... Yeah, you don't watch it as a neutral. For the Yeah, 
it's something you watch for the one mistake in 90 minutes yeah and it's sure as hell not something that like a a 10 year old kid goes wow mummy i love football now that was the most amazing thing did you see did you see how 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 juve didn't break their 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 line for the entire game wow they scored from the one set piece and I don't think they even conceded 0.5 xG. What a match, mummy! What a match! The, the the best example I probably have of that is England and the Euros, where they didn't really commit any players forward. They didn't really have anybody ahead of the ball. They were very very defensive and negative, and they didn't really leave any space in behind. And they won games. But from a neutral point of view, which is what I was, it was just absolutely atrocious to watch. Like, all the England games I watched were among the... I watched every game in the Euros, and the England games were always the worst games I watched. They were just absolutely dreadful. And and it's like... The, the difference would be whenever people watched Man City versus Liverpool, and everybody just says, that match is on a different level to everything in, I've seen in football in years and I think if you make it more appealing to teams to play that way, to play an attacking way, then football would be more fun. And the way to do that is to encourage teams to defend a higher line, not to actually encourage them to defend deep and be afraid of leaving mm, space exactly. in behind. One hundred percent. Because when, so, when you've got like um, when you've got Harry Armoire in your your centre back, who who isn't capable of turning and running. So you've got a problem because you have to defend deeper so that you don't leave that space in behind them or have lots of contingencies for it. And so if they removed him and, and basically play like Joe Gomez, you can immediately just play a higher line. It doesn't mean Joe Gomez is a better defender. It just means that he enabled you to play a higher line. Um, and so that's kind of like the thing I kind of want to encourage other teams to do is play higher up the pitch because football's a lot more exciting whenever you do there's just more space on the pitch to attack more counters exactly. it has a higher pace it isn't just slow methodical passing it around in front of a low block for 25 minutes waiting for someone to make a mistake which bores the hell out of me in the same way that um, abolishing the back pass rule was an in- inherently progressive change that took away nothing from the game and added a lot it was a superb rule change that was it was brilliant it's a really good rule change and the 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 the, the interfering with pay, play tweaks to the offside law unintentionally but they they've been like reintroducing the back pass law bad rule um and i'm delighted that as i understand it that the kind of host is obligated to actually play devil's advocate for room 101 and you've just been like nah fuck it actually i agree yeah fuck it <laughs> put the offside roll back how it was let's have teams kind of going high line to high line um i mean there, there are there are things i like about the offside rule in terms of like using var and letting no no there aren't just just admit that i'm correct and we'll 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 wrap it up and i can finally go to the loop <laughs> i guess we probably should leave it there because i guess the last thing people want is you to pee your pants on the on the stage that would be that would be embarrassing or even worse for me to take the laptop with me into the bathroom <laughs> it's that would be a whole different type of podcast Exactly. I don't think the public are ready for that yet. Maybe maybe two episodes time, but episode not 14. now. Too, too soon. Episode 14 from both the bathrooms. <laughs> bathroom to bathroom.
<laughs> content the content. That, that's, that's what we'll do next. Well, well, it was fantastic Steve. to speak to you, Seb, and, and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with this offside rule. Mate, absolute pleasure. Yeah. Speak to you again soon. Take it easy. You too, man. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening for this Crack Stats podcast. And a special thanks to our patron, without whom none of this would be possible. Seb will be joining Stephen again for the next episode. Follow us at CrackStats to be notified as soon as new episodes drop. We hope to see you then.